Hello fellow adventurers, I'm Josie Thompson and welcome to You Can Shine podcast where I explore real stories of real people just like you and I who have faced adversities and trials and won. Today I'm here with Kevin Porter. Let me tell you a little bit about our guest. I met Kevin through a mutual friend several months ago and if you want to hear a story of resilience and true grit, Fasten your seatbelts and get ready for a ride. Kevin is a research and design anthropologist and he provides intelligence to companies to deliver insightful solutions to common and uncommon business problems. He holds degrees in the University of Edinburgh and University of Queensland in social science and social anthropology. His honours research examined how military recruits are transformed from civilians into soldiers. Kevin himself served in the military from the age of 15 to 21 years old. He describes himself now as happy for no particular reason. He says he has discovered that life is a journey with no particular destination. Kevin is father to two teenage boys he was a stay-at-home dad for 14 years and he says they are what kept him alive. Kevin loves reading and speaks four languages fluently. Welcome, Kevin Porter. Hi, Josie. How are you? Good. It's great to have you here. Thanks for having me. So, Kevin, I've done a bit of a rundown on some of the career highlights of your life. Can you tell us the story underneath? What are some of the formative experiences that have shaped your life? Okay, so, um, well, I've got a Scottish mum and an English dad, so that's pretty, has an impact from the start. Uh, anytime there's sport or soccer, there's, you know, family rivalry straight away. But um, <laughs> I, I, lived, I had quite a, I'm an only child, but I had my uh, auntie and uncle lived next door with my three cousins and my grandparents lived at the end of the street. So we were quite a close family. Uh, this was in the northeast of England, so in the county of Durham. Mm-hmm. where my dad's from so and then when I was nine um, my dad was working in Germany and my parents decided that we were going to move to Germany only they forgot to tell me we were moving so I was under the impression we were going on holiday and um, yeah we moved so that that had quite an impact on my life I think that was the first the first thing that kind of upset my apple cart and changed my life because it was I lost seven people from one day to the next um, it was before internet and before most people had telephones in their houses. So, you know, it was, um, they were kind of gone and I wasn't prepared to say goodbye because I thought we were going on holiday. So that was the kind of, um, that was the thing that made me, that changed my life dramatically. So I think that's probably the first thing that had an impact on my life. Where So tell me how that changed your life so dramatically, because it sounds like it really impacted you. Yeah, well, I mean, I couldn't speak any German. So we moved from, a, we moved from an industrial area in the UK, a mining area to um and a fishing and sea seaport area to um a rural countryside area and you know very idyllic and very beautiful near the swiss border um next to the black forest so it's like it is quite pretty but it was a very small village in the middle of nowhere with you know cows and pigs and you know um there were germans there were italians there were austrians swiss uh yugoslavs Turks, Armenians, all living in this small village, some Americans, because there was a US army base nearby. So it was this hodgepodge of people. And I grew up in this very 
monoculture kind of society of miners and that's my family were miners on both sides um, mm. so it was this very you know this very uniform kind of culture of very white and the biggest i think difference in the where i grew up before moving was you were either catholic or you were protestant you mm. either went to the Catholic as a kid which i went to or you were protestant where my cousins went to so um then all of a sudden I moved to Germany and there were Muslims, there were Armenian Christians, there were Orthodox Christians, there were Roman Catholics, there were Lutherans, you know, so that was, and it was, a, it was still a time when religion was quite important in the seventies. God hadn't been killed off totally by at that time. So, um, you know, it was, uh, so that was an eye opener. It was the, it was the first time I became a foreigner. You know, I got labeled with the word Auslander, which means you know, out of the country foreigner. So, and then obviously being the only British child in the town, you know, it was, um, I was kind of on my own. I didn't have a, a pack to, to run with. So I used to get thrown in the bin most days off some of the older kids, the older Russian kids or the Turkish kids. They thought it'd be funny to throw me in the wheelie bin. So, um, yeah, that kind of taught me to be a fighter. You know, um, I've been kind of passive as a child growing up in the street. You know, we played football and it was the same children I'd grown up with. And then I moved to Germany and it was a, it was just, yeah, it was a different ball game altogether. So life changed dramatically. So you left the comfort and the familiarity of family yeah. and was, was thrown into this new context that where you were labelled the outsider. Yeah. And then it sounds like there was, there was some bullying behaviour. And, I mean, what was going on for you? How did you feel? Oh, gosh, I hated it. I hated it. I mean... I remember the first few months just crying for my for my nana all the time, mm. Mm. and if I did anything wrong, which was kind of frequent, and I got into trouble, my, I think my my defence as well was I, you know, nana, I want my nana, and I'd cry and I'd use it as a badge. But I think it was kind of it was heartfelt as well, you know. It was um, like I say, it was forced upon me, and I wasn't looking back in hindsight. Moving to Germany wasn't a terrible thing, but I think it was the way that my parents originally went about it, which was what caused all the problems. Mm. So that deceit, how did that affect you? Oh, yeah, I never trusted them again. So how did you behave? Oh, gosh, I went off the rails. I started skipping school all the time. Uh, I remember saying to my parents, I'm never going to do what you want me to do, ever. And um, I think they thought that was just a, like a childish spat, but it lasted for seven years, yeah, until I joined the army. Yeah. Mm, okay, so tell, tell us about that experience. It sounds like... Uh, your behaviour changed significantly during that time. Oh, yeah. Look, in Germany, I, I, I kind of went off the rails. I mean, I had a... It was an okay childhood, you know. It wasn't... Um, it, and now I look back and it was quite interesting, you know. I had a... There was a lot of variety. I ran away from home a few times um, with just family. My, my, my household was quite violent on both sides. So my parents went through a marriage breakup and then they kind of took it out on me. I was the kind of piggy in the middle. So they took the frustrations out on me and I provoked them a lot as well. You know, we, it became a kind of sadistic game at the time. Um, and because I, some of our, some of my family friends were a U.S. Uh, military. They were, there was an artillery base in the town where I grew up mm. and there was, there was a U.S. attachment there. So my parents were um, friends with many of the Americans and you know, I liked the uniform from a little age. My dad, had, my dad had served in the Royal Navy, so my grandfather's had served in the army. So 
there was a kind of military history. Um, it wasn't like I grew up in a military household, but from the age of nine, I grew up with US soldiers. So then the, the idea came to join the army and it was also a way of getting away from them. So Kevin, when you say your parents took things out on you, what do you mean by that? When I was, um, so when I was 15, I'd been annoying my mom. I'd been skipping school and shoplifting and I'd been a real pain in the backside. And then her boyfriend, she was dating an American soldier. He, um, so mum and dad broke up. Yeah, they broke off like maybe a year or two after we moved to Germany, which right. didn't help. Mm. Um, but yeah, my mum had a boyfriend and um, their relationship ended and I'd been annoying her for months. I'd been a real pain in her side. And she'd been drinking one day and we got into an argument. She decided she was going to try and push me off a third floor, a third story um, balcony, which ended in a, quite a physical fight. So, you know, it was that kind of abuse, you know, it was, um, my dad was quite, you know, it was a time when parents hit their children anyway, but you know, my, my parents kind of took it as that one or two steps further. Mm, I can't imagine what it must've been like for you. Well, it became normal. So it wasn't, it wasn't like, um, I don't think at the time it was extremely traumatizing because it was, it was just the normal. It's kind of what you get used to. I think it's these kind of traumas happen to people sometimes when you, um, when you get stuck mentally in that time when you, you know, you can't move forward inside your head. But at the time it didn't, it was just the normal. It was just the way that, you know, I tried to avoid them as much as I could, mm. but I provoked them. You know, it was a part of the game. So was this what was your impetus to go and join the military? I just hated them. Mm. I didn't like them. And I thought that they destroyed my life. And I thought that the UK was, or England was where I had to be. At that age, the only way I could get back was um, to join the army. Okay. So that was your next formative experience? Yeah, it was, yeah. Tell me how. Well, I underachieved at, at school. I wasn't really interested in school. I finished school the week after my 15th birthday, legally. Uh, the way, as we moved to Germany, I got put in a grade where everybody was a year above me. Mm-hmm. Because in Britain, you started school earlier than the German children. I started at four and a half, and in Germany, they started at seven. Mm-hmm. So they put me in a class that was like a year above. So I was one of the youngest in the class when we graduated, and um, I had a year of doing well not a year quite about eight months of doing nothing and then yeah I went off to join the army so I'd I'd set all my tests I took the 15 pound I think it was that we got and said my oath of allegiance in the December of 1985 so by then I was I'd given I'd been given an army number and I was in the army and I had to go for I think one more medical test and then on the I think it was the third or fourth of June I started at the Army Apprentice College in Harrogate, which was, yeah, a shock to the system. A lot of spotty teenagers, you know, um, being screened at by grown men and, you know, spit and shine and polish and marching. And, yeah, it was, um, I remember meeting somebody on the train who I'm still friends with now. And uh, he had the, the mullet and the ghetto blaster and he was, you know, full of beans. And we got down there, yeah, and our lives changed dramatically, you know, it was... Um, it probably, I mean, joining the army saved me from the way I was heading, which was probably youth detention if I hadn't joined the army because um, I was already doing what I wanted to do as part of my revenge package on my parents. Mm. So um, we did 12 months of basic training. I joined as a, a junior leader in the, the Royal Signals. We did a year's um, military training, map reading, leadership training, um, some 
kind of secondary education for those that did badly. Um, yeah, it just it was joining the army for a, for a year as a junior before going into a senior regiment, into a regular regiment. So tell me how that was formative for you. Well, it taught me. Right, it, it taught me a, a few things. One of the first things it taught me is you can't beat the system. You can play it, but you can't beat it. You know, um, when you try to fight the system, the system fights back. Um, it taught me not to be selfish. It taught me to be there for other people. You know, the camaraderie that um, that's developed. I mean, the training is brutal. The way that they change young men and women these days is maybe not quite as harsh as it was back then. Um, there's certainly more um, scrutiny of how training is conducted. But, um, yeah, it taught me a lot of self-discipline. It taught me cleanliness. It taught me the importance of teamwork, of, of um, honesty, of loyalty, of uh, trying your hardest, of giving that little bit extra. You know, I think... Um, that, that year at Harrogate um, gave me friendships. I'm still friends with um, probably about 40% of the guys that I went through training with and have contact with them various times per week. Um, and that's something very unique to the military, I think. You know, I think um, more than boarding schools or anything, you know, it's forged through some hardship. I mean, I went from one violent situation, which was my home life, to um, another violent situation, which was the military, because the military is by nature violent. So they're training people to be, to perpetuate violence and to be prepared for violence. So, you know, it's, um, so there, yeah, some of their, some of their, at least their old methods were very archaic and quite brutal, but it is a brutal. So again, that it, it, it toughens you up. I don't know if it toughens you up. It kind of makes your, it makes you like leather on the inside, a bit like an old tough boot, I think, you know, um, it weathers you to certain kinds of abuse, you know, um, but it's an abusive place, you know, and it's a, a system of hierarchies. So the military is, you know, it's, it has so many hierarchies on so many different levels, both horizontal and vertical. So you have hierarchy within your chain of command, and then you have the hierarchy within the block men who are more senior, men who are more alpha, men who are more toxic, you know, so mm. it teaches you a lot about life. It teaches you how to get on with people when you live, when you're living in extremely confined spaces. It also teaches you how to look after yourself and, you know, it teaches you a lot about yourself. It teaches you, um, you can pretend to be lots of things and then you join the military and they gas you and they beat you and they put you through various types of hard training. They push you and you can't hide from that, you know, and, who you really are comes out. They see it and everybody else sees it and you see it. So, you know, I think the military is a good thing for, it gets rid of pretense out of people. So tell me when you say, you know, who you really are comes out, who came out of that for you? Oh, wow. Going back to when I was 16, who came out? Oh, a liar, a fantasist, um, somebody who's angry, somebody who's really scared at the time. You know, um, somebody who um, I was aware of all these things. You know, I might not have uh, spoken about them or admitted to them, but I was—I remember being aware of a lot of them. I remember being frightened, and um, yeah, I was very scared before I went in because my dad kind of scared me a lot about telling me that you know I was going to be taught some big lessons in life, and so I already went in apprehensive and. How did the military prepare you for life? 
Well, the, look, the military taught me how to push, to always give that little bit extra, not to give up when it's hard. Um, the problem with that is in the military, you have, the military helps you create a system where you're all codependent, you work together. So everybody, in training, for instance, if one person makes a mistake, everybody gets punished. Mm. That creates a sense of togetherness because you don't want everybody else to get punished because of you. Mm. One, because they're your friends, but two, you also don't want them to start hating you. Mm. So it, there's always more than just one thing going on. So the military teaches you to be selfless, to think of others, to see a bigger picture. Um, but it doesn't prepare you to pay your electricity bills or to, you know, there's certain aspects of, of modern life that, you know, the army doesn't prepare you for. And there's lots of civilian things that the army doesn't prepare you for. It doesn't really prepare you for being on your own after living with people so closely. And then suddenly you're, you're out of the block. You're out of a, a room with various other men and people coming and going in these rooms all the time. And suddenly you're in your own four walls and mm. you have to, yourself and you have to cook your own meals there's no cookhouse anymore and you have to go and get your own shopping and you have to budget for all these things and these are things that most soldiers you know if, if they never get married and they're living in in military accommodation within the block or the sergeant's mess it's something they never have to worry about until they leave so if they join at 15 and they leave at 30 or later then they've never ever had to take care of themselves since they were born in that way because i'm sure their parents did it before that and then the army's done it after that. So that these are things that are difficult to adjust to. So it must have, yeah, I was about to say, it must have been a big adjustment when you chose to leave at 21, yeah? Yes. Uh, what happened so, after that? Well, I struggled for the first few years. I, um, my, my, well, I drank more. Um, I probably fought more for the first one or two years when I first left. Um, I think I left with a chip on my shoulder. Um, which I didn't think I had at the time. I thought it was everybody else. But I left with this, this superiority complex where I thought I was better than especially civilian men. Um, I thought I knew it all. I left with this incredible arrogance that the British Army instills in you. Um, and it was hard. It was hard to find my feet. And um, I went up to Edinburgh, uh, where my mum's from, and I started working in a hospital because... I had combat first aid skills, which I'd been taught in the military, which I could kind of transfer to. I didn't want to work in communications and I didn't want to work in a factory or in a building site, you know, especially up in Edinburgh. So some of the transferable skills I had was working in a hospital. So I, I used them. I got a job as an auxiliary nurse up in Edinburgh. Um, first working in care of the elderly, and that was a lot of lifting. So, um, and a lot of emotions, you know, it's like seeing your grandparents. And so anyway, I ended up working with children instead. So I went to um, Douglas House in Edinburgh, which is a, a home for, it's a residential home for about 12 to 15 children who are all severely physically and mentally handicapped, which is part of the Royal Hospital for Sick Children in Edinburgh. And I worked there for a number of years in between traveling as well. So I went off to the Middle East, I went and traveled around Egypt and um, Israel, and then back to Edinburgh and work in hospitals. And, and then I, was, I met a lot of Israelis um, who were finishing off in the army and I was going to go to India with them. And um, I couldn't make enough money working in Israel illegally to mm -hmm. fly to India. So I flew back to the UK 
um, went back to Edinburgh and I was working in the hospital and I was making the money to uh, fly out to Kathmandu, to Nepal, to meet my Israeli friends and travel around uh, Nepal and India. And one day it was raining and uh, I missed my bus and next to the bus stop was um, a job center and it was the internet had just started and computers were just coming out. I knew something about computers from my army time. So mm. I went in and I started messing around with the computers and it said, um, I found a page that said the University of Edinburgh open day and it was that day and it was pouring outside. It was really cold and I thought they'll probably have free food, free drink and it'll be full of women. So I went over to the university, which was two streets away. And I started talking to an anthropologist called uh, Jonathan Spencer. He's a professor now. And um, I think I ended up going for some beers with him and told him my life story. And he said, oh, you should, you know, go to, go to university and study anthropology. And I still didn't know what anthropology was. I don't know what anthropology is. Can you give us a, a, a succinct definition that we can understand? Yeah, anthropology is the comparative study of human cultures. So it's, um, it's anthropology studies what we do, how we do it, and why we do it. And then it compares it with other societies around and cultures around the world. So if I want to understand something about Queensland fishermen, then I'll study Queensland fishermen, but I'll also study fishermen in Japan and maybe fishermen in America and mm. fishermen in Africa. And then what I'll see is all the things that they have in comparison uh, what is universal to fishing and then all the things that are different is what's specific to each culture so then I actually understand something about queens and fishing because I understand what they're not as well as what they are so tell me how that would be useful to you know say corporations and strategy for corporates okay so 10 years ago Lego was um, going bankrupt they were spending I think three hundred thousand dollars per week in interest repayments mm. uh, they were on the brink of yeah, collapse. What had basically happened was one of their um, marketing executives had read some pseudo-psychology in some business magazine about how all children have um, ADHD and very low concentration spans and, you know, they can't do anything and, you know, they get bored very quickly. So what Lego did was they, he decided that they were going to um, change some of their toys and strategies. And instead of just making the blocks, they started making these little alien figures. My children had some, they were horrible. Mm. Anyway, it wasn't working. It wasn't going very well. And they were getting more and more in debt. I think it had been over a, lo a longer period, 10 years maybe. And um, they, they took over a new CEO. And he somehow hired a company called Red Associates. Red Associates is a, also a Danish company. Um, and it was formed by a lawyer, I believe, or a business graduate and a philosophy graduate. Um, who I think they both they were childhood friends and they'd studied in London as well as Copenhagen. And in London, while they were studying, um, they fell in love with anthropology, both of them, and especially with the methodology of anthropology, which is participant observation. It has its entire set of philosophies and tools. Um, so using the functionality of Heidegger and combining it with anthropology, they went out and decided to help um, Lego. <clears throat> so what they did first was they looked at what is play. They defined what is play. What is play and why do we play? Mm -hmm. And then they looked at children around the world. So they looked at children in uh, the US, uh, Germany, and Denmark. And they looked at value systems. So what is it the children value? What is it that they want? What is it? 
and then what is it they play? They looked. They also looked at ADHD and what is ADHD because this was part of the claims that are being made. And um, what they discovered was one: most children don't have ADHD or ADHD symptoms, and they're actually quite good at concentrating. And two: children that have ADHD are incredibly focused on things that they are interested in. And one of the things they discovered with two boys, one in Germany and one in in the U.S., was they created their own fantasy leagues but from the top of their heads, not from newspapers and everything. They created all the stats and everything from their own imagination. It was incredible. So that opened their eyes to the, the ability of these people. So then they helped them to find user groups. So now we have on television, we have these um, shows about Lego masters where they're building all these. Well, this was one of these things that Red brought in, which was bringing in user groups into the company because this is telling the company what people want. And it's showing you the limitations of what can be done with their product. I mean, building things that the Lego engineers and creators hadn't even thought about, hadn't even considered. So that's helped to boost this industry. It got them into films and into video games. And you know, so it was um, understanding. Anthrop what anthropology did was it, or what Red did, we using anthropology, was it gave this company, Lego, an understanding of their human-centric environment, what their clients want, how people work together. Um, and it's helped them turn around the company. I mean, you know. No matter, no matter what we do in business you know, or in the world, the end effect and the end target are people. The client is the person, is the human. So understanding that mm. is important for any business. That's a really wonderful example. Now, we got to the military. We got to you traveling and working in hospitals. When was the next formative experience for you? I went to university, definitely. So um, I ended up not going to India. Um, and I went and did uh, an access course. So I completed grade 12 or 13 at university, two days a week while I worked in the hospital, which was a major challenge because obviously I'd never studied at school. You know, I never did homework and the teachers gave up on me. You know, I was just the child who decided to fail. And this was one of the things that I think, um, me being so angry with my parents um, had a more of a detrimental effect on my life and it wasn't something that they'd then done. This was me perpetuating this anger and believing that I was justified to be annoyed with them. Um, and there was, no matter what happened in my life, every time something was bad, I would say it was them. It's their mm. fault. Mm. Because, they, so because they did that. So I took zero responsibility for my own actions. So now you're uh, finding yourself at university and you're actually starting to take responsibility, yeah? Yeah, well, I, I suppose I'd, I'd taken responsibility for various things throughout life, but you know, I wasn't like totally reckless. I think the army gave me a very good base of discipline, but I could be flippant without a doubt. Mm. And I wasn't, I struggled the first couple of years of university. I'd never read a classic book. I'd never, well, I'd never read anything apart from like tabloid newspapers. Um, I wasn't stupid by any means, but I had no education whatsoever mm -hmm. you know, what did it take oof lots of tantrums you know lots of wine lots of wine, bruised egos i struggled i think um in in the so the access course i struggled but i did well i got uh, two a's so um i got the highest gpa i could get which is what edinburgh required for me to go there they wanted um it's a it's an elite university so it's um we were kind of the token students the poor students, it's mostly, you know, Eton graduate, Eaton, um, mm. and public school of Britain's elite, so, and foreign elite as well. So it's quite a, it's a, it's quite an elite university. 
so they want they had high standards were expected so i got two a's in and passed all the subjects that i had to pass i can't remember the grades anymore but i got everything that edinburgh asked of me um and then i was accepted into a four four year um degree at edinburgh um, it was actually an ma honors for four years in social cultural anthropology and then in my third year my mom was diagnosed with alzheimer's disease in her 40s and that she had to stop working she couldn't afford her rent so i my my ex-wife had then moved back to spain as well she was doing a phd in spain or she'd started a phd in spain so we were two students living in two separate countries um me trying to look after my mom as well or pay her pay her rent mm. um so in the end in my final year at edinburgh um i didn't submit my thesis and i left with a bachelor of science instead of an ma honors um so i got a bachelor of science in social science and then i moved to spain for um 11 years before moving to australia i moved to spain got married had two children That would have been very formative, I can imagine. Yeah, Spain was different, you know. Spain was culturally very... I mean, I'd, I was used to kind of being around foreign people. I was used to learning languages. I was used to um, travel. Um, so that wasn't a problem. Um, but then getting used to another culture again, kind of the older you get, I suppose, the harder it gets, you get more accustomed or you demand certain ways of behaviour. Kevin, I want to ask you, you know, you've gone from, you know, a fairly challenging environment being brought up with abusive parents and then getting into the military and then finding your way into academia and then moving to Spain and getting married and having two children. I mean, I want to try to understand what it took for you to form a bond and to trust and allow someone into your world, let alone create a family now, and what it was like to have your own sons. Okay, so, well, moving to Spain was quite hard. And I think that's when most of my mental problems started to surface. So, obviously, everybody was working in my kind of my political family. Um, and I had to learn Spanish and we'd moved to a part of Spain where there wasn't a lot of work and there's an awful lot of corruption and there's a lot of backhanders and there's a lot of people working for no money. And I kind of went there with a, I suppose, a slight attitude problem that I wasn't going to bow down to the negative parts of this beautiful culture. But I wasn't going to bow down to kind of the, the nepotism or the, you know, their bad culture. It was how I viewed it. And I wasn't going to um, slack off for that. I wasn't going to mm. drop my eyes. So um, I, I worked teaching English, but I hated it because I'm not an English teacher. And I felt in Spain, they just, have, they just want you to have, be a native speaker and to have a degree. They don't care what the degree is in if you want to teach English. So I ended up working at a Jesuit school, but they ended up paying me half of what they agreed to pay me. Um, and I wasn't for... Um, compromising with them. So I found it quite difficult sometimes in Spain. It led me to drink a lot because I was struggling with the day-to-day -day kind of corruption and lax attitude towards everything, you know, and the Spanish are quite... Mañana, I discovered, doesn't mean tomorrow. It's a non-specific time frame. It could mean tomorrow, it could mean next week. What it means is not now. Mm. It's a bit of the Arabic, um, inshallah, which means mm. if God will. 
means nothing. So yeah, I discovered the time in different parts of Europe doesn't mean the same, you know, as um, we might expect it to be. So Spain was quite hard. And then to get over the frustrations of, first of all, not being able to speak Spanish and having to learn it and not getting paid for jobs and, you know, um, getting ripped off all the time. And like life was a constant haggle. Everything is haggling. And I found that quite hard. So I ended up going out like four nights a week for four years where I'd just go out and get drunk every night. And I mean, I would always go to work the next day. And my ex-wife never said anything because obviously I always got up and went to work and I never let it kind of affect openly our relationship, but it obviously did. It obviously wasn't ideal. Um, I stopped drinking and stopped going out a month before my son was born, my first son. We moved out of the city. We kind of, in Spain, we lived in a part of the city which in Brisbane would be like the valley. Okay. The party. And we lived, you know, as a family, but um, I was out four nights a week because it was noisy. So I figured, well, I might as go out. I might as well go out and join in with it rather than try and sleep through it. So, and it became a habit. And then I stopped when my oldest son was born and we moved out to the countryside, about 20 kilometers outside of the city. And then my second son came along and we were still living outside the city. And it was just before the, the financial crisis that my wife was offered a job here, my ex-wife. So we came. So Kevin, you had a baby. Yeah, too. You know, what was it like to now have this experience of being a father yourself? I was crazy because I was, I'd always spoken about children and I wanted to have children. But then while I was being selfish and out drinking, it never seemed like the right time. By then I kind of realized that I was, that I had some mental issues. And I, I, I think I knew deep down inside that I was running away from a lot of things. I wasn't totally sure what they were, but I also didn't want to look. You know, and um, so I was conscious um, that I was avoiding a number of issues. And deep down inside, I already wasn't happy. I wasn't happy with my situation, with the work I was doing. It wasn't fulfilling. I wanted to do anthropological work. Um, I was also very disappointed that I had to settle for a Bachelor of Science instead of an, an MA Honours in, in anthropology um, because of family circumstances again. So I was holding on to a lot of anger about a lot of different issues that I've been carrying all the way through my life, which was basically what had happened and then yeah and then these two children came along so I was trying to I'd always said that I would never be I wouldn't go out and drink which is what my dad did you know I never he, he didn't abuse me because of drink he you know he was good with his hands whether he was sober or he wasn't a drunk or anything like that hmm. but yeah I always said that I needed to break this chain and that I didn't want to be the same kind of dad so if I had children and I wanted to be there for them all the time hmm. I ended up being more than I bargained but um you know um and it was hard sometimes especially when we first came to Australia because I didn't know anybody it was a school that was you know back then back so 12 years ago there were hardly any stay-at-home dads and at least in in the, in, in the neighborhood that I live in there were none so it was me so your wife was offered a job in Australia you all moved to Australia and you became stay-at-home dad yeah even more so in Spain I was stay-at-home dad but I was working as well and I had, a big, I had a big group of friends. And then suddenly, um, moving to Australia was very quick because I think my ex-wife got a job offer in December and they just told her she had a week to decide. And we were here three months later. 
It usually takes 18 months to get here, but um, she's an embryologist. So we were here in, in no time because they couldn't run the lab without a head embryologist. So that's how we ended up coming here. And then obviously she worked a lot. So she was working six, sometimes seven days to try and bring the lab up to all the standards that it had to be at. There was a lot of paperwork that they were behind on. There was an awful lot of work. So suddenly we were in this new country. It was hot compared to where we'd been. It was really hot. I had two children. One was in prep and the other was just tearing up the neighborhood. He was crazy. Um, no family support. Everybody told me I was going to walk into a job, no problem. And we were here on a 457 visa, so nobody wanted to give me a job. So, yeah, I just, I fell into a massive depression mm -hmm. to the point where I was suicidal. I was diagnosed with post-PTSD, so lots of different things came up, things from my childhood, things, everything just manifested itself here. So, Kevin, tell me, how did you get through that? What did you do to pull up from depression and the PTSD? Okay, well, I'd already mean, well, what happened was um, I blew a fuse in the house one day um, in front of my wife, my ex-wife and the children, and I was, I didn't hurt anybody, but I was screaming and shouting. Like I really just lost my temper. I lost control. I was like throwing things around the house like a mad person. And then this probably lasted for like half an hour, 40 minutes. I calmed down. And then all of a sudden I just felt incredible guilt and shame. And well, I had the image of my children and my ex-wife, just this, mm. you know, quite a I'm quite a big man. So, you know, um, they were terrified and, I felt horrendous. And then when everybody had gone to bed, I decided that I couldn't go on like this. So I, um, I climbed under the roof of the house at the back, which was three stories, and I was going to jump off head first. I stood right on the edge of the gutter. And as I went to, as I started to let myself fall, um, just this image of my children just popped into my head. Of, and it was a millisecond. It was just, uh, you know, it, it felt maybe ages at the time, but it was just a split second of all these images and the feeling of them finding me either dead or with a broken neck, you know, like just lying in the garden in a mess. And I realized that that wouldn't be good. I couldn't do it. So um, I got myself down off the roof at six in the morning. I called my GP um, and said that I, I was contemplating suicide. Um, I went in to see the GP. He, he told me to come in immediately. I went in to see him hmm. and he, called a friend of his who's a psychologist and I went down to see that psychologist almost immediately um I didn't say anything I think I just cried for the first hour and I went to see him two days later and kind of the same thing I think as soon as I started crying I think it was like that for, look it was it was amazing because he didn't he charged me hardly anything of what he could have or what he should have charged me it was um it was uh, he saved me really you know so mm. um once I decided that I actually wasn't going to commit suicide, then I, I decided that I needed help. So um, I started going to see the psychologist regularly. I was trying to turn my life around. I still had marital problems. And then I became aware that, I, you know, that my marriage was over mm. um, just before Christmas. But it was like I became aware of one day that it was over and it was over the next day. Yeah. Um, that it was a shock because I wasn't, I'd been so self-involved and so, and, you know, it's been like four months since I've been to see this, like since I'd started seeing the psychologist. So I thought I was making progress and, 
as I was kind of becoming aware that I'd been damaging my marriage as well, um, I also became aware that it was too late. Mm. My wife had had, my ex-wife had had enough. Um, and that was then a big blow. That was like another, that was one step forward and 50 steps back. So. Because then I had to fear my wife, my ex-wife started talking about going back to Spain. I couldn't see how we could because Spain was just crippled with debt and no work. And so I became frightened of losing my children. So I started, the suicidal feelings started to come again. Um, I was at university then. I'd also decided while I was undergoing psych, my, seeing my psychologist that I would go back and, and finish my honours degree because I'd never submitted my thesis for my first. So it was also a thorn in my side that I needed to, it was something that I needed to take care of. Mm. It wasn't mm. going to get me a job, but it was something that I kind of needed to, to address for myself um, as part of my recovery, as part of, because what I discovered about wanting to commit suicide was I got to a point here in my life where I'd just given up. I just, I applied for over 1,500 jobs in Australia in the first five and a half or six years that we were here, and mm. I got no replies because nobody knows what anthropology is. Mm. It's just, and I wasn't qualified to do anything that anybody was interested in, so I felt totally useless. You know, I was here in a country 18,000 kilometers away from where I was born. You know, I have a big friend base in Spain. I have friends in Germany. I have friends in the UK, and I knew nobody here. You know, being a stay-at-home dad was stay-at-home isolation as well, because you know. So you you went back to uni. You finished that the master's studies. Your marriage broke down. You then, you know, had to find yourself in a whole new space now of personal responsibility. And you've still got these two beautiful children that you cultivate relationship with. What have been your biggest lessons that you've learned through all of that? Well, look, I think it was kind of my marriage had broken up and then um, I worked really hard at university my first year, so I, I finished top of my class. I think um, my GPA was 6.5 or something like that. And I was then going to do my, my writing, my thesis, um, which I had planned out and mapped. And the degree was keeping me sane and trying to, it was actually keeping me focused from not thinking about my marriage breakup. And then uh, on the 17th of December, my ex-wife was going back to Spain with my children for six weeks. So I was gonna be here for six weeks, I decided I was going to write my thesis and work on it and get ahead of everything. And, and my dad died unexpectedly the morning that they were leaving. So that was, again, just another huge backward step again. It was like um, every time I felt like I was picking myself up, I, just, I got knocked back down again. And that was, that was horrendous. That was probably the... Because I hit rock bottom and, and I drank for seven weeks solid while my ex-wife and children were in Spain, I decided I was going to drink myself to death. And then um, it didn't work. I just got really fat. Um, so um, they came, she did come back like she'd promised. And I think we still lived together for another year after that, mainly because of the children. And then it was time to move on. You know, uh, she met somebody else and decided that it was time for her to move on. I'd finally managed to find some work. So we then went our separate ways. And then again, that was another, I'd gone from seeing my children every day to for up to 10 hours a day mm. to then see for one week on and one week off. So that again was incredibly hard because I've gone from, for 14 years, I've seen them every day, seven days a week. 
And that's something I can certainly relate to because that's what happened with, with me as well. But I've never heard what the experience is like from a dad. You know, what was it like from your experience to go from seeing them every day to, to now only seeing them every second week? What was it? You know, talk about the emotional journey there. I felt empty. I felt like I was dying. That's what it felt like. I felt like it was a... I fe- <laughs> okay, so what I actually thought was that this was karma coming back to bite me in the backside. Mm. Um, because I was, I was, it was like, you know, every time I tried to pick myself up, I felt like I was getting smashed back down again. Mm. Uh, and there was, my job was precarious. It's always been minimum wage. And, you know, there was like, so now I was living on my own. I wasn't seeing my children. I became homeless almost twice where the RSL actually bailed me out and helped me. Um, and I was just stressing. I was like, you know, my weight was bouncing up and down all the time. And, um, you know, I went from being like 80 kilos to 130 kilos and then back down to 80 kilos and then back up to 100. And so it was like this kind of yo-yo lifestyle, panicking. And then, I don't know, um, about a year and a half ago, things started to click in my head. And it was a case of no matter how stressed I get, it doesn't make anything worse and it doesn't make anything better. And um, I'd read a book by Peter Strong called The Art of Mindfulness Meditation, I think it's called. Um, and I just started to devour this book. I read it various times, maybe five or six times. It's, uh, I suppose it's a kind of psychological Buddhist guide for beginners. Um, but it was incredibly useful. And I realized that, you know, part of my problem was that I was holding on to things instead of just being aware of them and understanding them. I was actually, I was holding on to all this anger and I was using it as a, as a weapon to attack other people with and all this pity and all this, you know. Once I let go of all of that, things started to become much better. I formed my own business, which is going slowly, but it's going. Um, I found full-time employment working in a school as a groundsman. And it's, um, so you're turning it around. So, so Kevin, really curious to understand how you turned that anger and pity into, mm-hmm. a, you know, a greatest power rather than a poison. I started thinking about toxic masculinity. I was writing a paper on it, um, which actually started over well over a year ago, and it got me thinking about my own behaviour. One of the reasons I became an anthropologist was because I was trying to understand me who I was. The reason I went off and did my thesis on the creation of identities was because I was trying to work out who I was. I was trying to understand this, how I fit into this, this scheme of things. So mm. to, to believe that I'm here because this is where I'm meant to be. Why? I don't know. I'll find out. But this is, my life has brought me to this point here. Mm. We hit the, great, the financial crisis. Um, we escape the pandemics that are going on in Europe. You know, this is where we're meant to be. My children are really safe and they're really happy. They're doing well at school. My ex-partner, my ex-wife has found a partner here. He's nice. My children like him. Um, she's happy. So that's good. And, you know, I've got a roof over my head. We're all healthy. So. So there's still a lot to be grateful for. Yeah, of course. Look, I heard something off... Um, Bill Bryson, the American author who writes great travel books. And he said, there's, you know, there's been a billion or a tri- trillion years of past until we were born. 
and then we're here for this fleeting 70 years and then we're gone forever again mm. so we're extremely lucky to be here mm. and we and it nobody said it's going to be easy nobody said you're going to have things gifted to you you know it's like life i was talking to a friend yesterday and i said you know we were talking about this and life is a verb life is for doing that's what it is it's not passive life is an activity it's you get up and you do it if you sleep for eight hours a day that's a third of your life in bed so you better be doing something with the other, the other two-thirds of it you know but it is it's, it's it's a journey with no destination none of us are getting out of here alive like spike mulligan said you know it's um mm. or groucho marx song you know it's um this is it where you know you've got this this fleeting time we don't know how long it's for and yeah we should I, I, it's taken me a long time, 50 years, to realize that you just need to be grateful for it. Mm, and it's a bit like Cup DM, isn't it? Seize the day. Yeah, seize yeah. the day. Beautiful. Thank you, Kevin, for sharing your story. If people want to connect with you or know more, where can they go? Uh, you can be on LinkedIn or my business webpage, which is anthropogenesis.com.au. Beautiful. I'll put that in the show notes. Thank you. Yeah. What an inspiration you've been, Kevin. It hasn't been easy, but you've shown us that no matter what the circumstances, you can rise and shine again. So thank you so much for sharing your story. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. Now, if Kevin can do it, so can you. Did you like this podcast interview? Share your comments with me and tell me what you loved about it and how it was helpful for you. Help spread the love by sharing the link with your friends so that they too can rise and shine. So until next time, remember, it's not what happens to you that defines you. It's how you respond that counts. Shine on. Yeah, shine.